Well, we have just completed uh, 40 days of prayer where we have been praying for the big issues in our life that we need God to, to intervene on. We have uh, been praying for three of our friends that uh, need to come to know Jesus, and uh, we have been praying for this city and for this community. And so I hope that you have been able to engage in that process over the last 40 days, that you have been able to spend uh, some extra time in prayer, that you have, have stretched yourself through this time. Um, I know certainly in this gathering for the last six weeks, we have stretched ourselves, and uh, we have uh, sought to put into practice some of the things that we've been talking about and, and push ourselves a little bit out of our comfort zone to really engage with God in prayer in, in some very uh, real ways. And so I hope you've been blessed by that time together uh, over the last six weeks. Uh, we will continue to, to have prayer be an important emphasis in what we do and in each of our gatherings and, and as a church that we want to be and long to be a praying church. And so uh, don't let the 40 days of prayer ending mean that you get to stop prayer, right? This should be uh, just a taste of so much more that we can be a part of. Uh, today, we are going to uh, shift gears and enter into a new series, uh, simply titled James. And so we're going to look at the book of James. And so we are going to spend some time looking at this letter and looking at uh, what it means to have a faith that works and what it means for us, how, uh, how our lives can be impacted by what James has to say. Um, if you are going through and looking for passages to preach on, um, James is not one that you want to pick um, because James is challenging. James uh, presents us with some really tough stuff. There are things in James that I wish were not there, um, but they're there. And so instead of avoiding it, we really need to dig into it and say, how does this impact our lives? As, as disciples of Jesus, as ones who want to follow him, uh, what are these things that we need to be doing? Because James makes it very clear that faith and works, these two combine in, in a very a special, a very important way. And so what does faith look like for us? As we, as we go through James, in, in true fashion, we're going to get a little uncomfortable. Uh, there will be things in here that, that rub us a little bit the wrong way, things that challenge us, things that stretch us out of our comfort zone, and, and those are good things because if we are not stretched, we're not learning and we're not growing. And so we're going to, to dive into this and really try to, to come with some, some just real clarification of what God expects for us. Uh, in life and in relationships with him and relationship with others. And so as we look at this, this book of James, we first have to ask, who is James? Who is this guy that is writing this to us? And, and really, it's most likely that this is the half-brother of Jesus, which says something, right? That, that, that a relative of Jesus is, is writing to this group of people. And so there's a certain weight that is carried to it. That this, this is a son of Mary and Joseph. This is someone who knew Jesus firsthand in a very real way. Now, how many of you have a, a sibling? How many of you have a sibling? Yeah, we, there's some turned up noses about that. 
<laughs> so we, we have siblings, and, and we know those siblings, good, bad, and ugly, and everything else, right? We, we experience them in the very real moments of life. And so here is James who has experienced Jesus in the very real moments of life. And he's writing this letter and encouraging this church. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, we see that uh, James received this personal visit from the resurrected Jesus. And so there is a connection there. We see in Acts 15 and 21 that, that James goes on to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He carries a very significant role of leadership there. He is not just passive in what's going on, but, but carries authority there. In Galatians 2, 9, it says that he is a pillar of the Jerusalem church. This is an important leader, and this helps us understand the first verse of James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Here is our introduction. Here is our greeting that says who it is that's writing and who they're writing to. And James doesn't come in and say, James, the brother of Jesus, listen to me because I'm related to the guy. He comes in and says, James, a servant of Jesus. Now, for those of you who have the sibling, once again, how many of you introduce yourself as a servant of your brother or sister? Wow, no one? Come on. We've got one back there. Very good. There's a good relationship back there. And so James is saying, I am a servant of this Jesus. My older brother, my older brother, I'm a servant of him. I'm a follower of his. And so there's this great humility that is setting the tone right in the very first words of what's happening here. James is a servant. He introduces himself. He doesn't name drop. And then after he identifies himself, he gives us an idea of who he's writing to. The 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And so the 12 tribes scattered among the nations are really the, the, the Jerusalem church that is scattered because of persecution. Remember in, in Acts, we see that the, the, the church is, is in Jerusalem, but after Stephen is stoned, the persecution is, is forcing them to scatter into all different places. And so James is talking to this scattered church, these people who have been forced out of their homes forced away from their families, forced away from their faith community and into places they did not want to go. And so this is who James is talking to. He, he is talking to this group of people who, who have been forced into different places and he's saying to them, it is time to put your faith to work. That you say these are the things that you believe about God. This is what you believe about Jesus. But will you put those things into practice in these times that are dark, in these places where you do not want to be, in these trials that you're facing, in the poverty that you're facing, in these situations, will you put your faith into action? And so this is who James writes to. 
And so as we go into this study into James, there's, there's a couple of reasons why we really want to be focusing on James. Why do we study James? And the first thing we really want to focus in on is, is examining the relationship between faith and works. Because if you have grown up in some sort of legalistic church environment, some of us can relate to that, this legalistic church environment works are the things that define our relationship with God. And as we come into an understanding of what grace means, we say it is grace that saves, not works. And so the pendulum tends to swing the opposite direction where it's, it's all grace and no works. And James says the two are connected. The two cannot be separated. And so we're going to spend some time looking at this relationship between faith and works. James refers to faith 14 times in his letter. But the letter is filled with commands at the same time. So there are 108 verses in James. And of those 108 verses, 59 of them have some sort of commandment. There's a lot of action in James. A lot of things to do. A lot of things to be obedient in. He's giving us some very specific instructions and so, as we talk about obedience, it's going to be easy for us to, to wave the flag and yell legalism. Because we are not justified by works. We're justified by faith. But obedience is something that we have got to be talking about. Because, because James, because Jesus, because Scripture, God is calling us to be obedient. In a world that says obedience isn't important, in, in a world that says everything is equal, in a world that says there is no right or wrong, obedience is critical. And so what does it mean to be obedient? James makes it very clear there is a connection between the two, that faith and works, faith and obedience, those things have to go together. And it's immature and it's irresponsible and it's shallow of our faith to think that we can separate the two to think that we can have one and not the other. But it's also important for us to look at James because it helps us explore what our faith looks like in our own life, in the life of the city and of this world. Because it's not just about my relationship with God and how I interact with Him, but it's also about my interaction with each other. It's about my interaction with the world around me. And so how does my faith impact the way I respond to others? How does my faith impact what I do outside of these walls? How does my faith impact what I do in my neighborhoods, in my workplace? James addresses some very practical issues for us, and, and it's going to get very practical. He talks about things like trials and poverty and riches and materialism and favoritism and, and social justice and, and what we speak about and worldliness and boasting and, and how we make plans and what we do when we're sick and how we pray and, and lots of other things. These are all very practical things that he, he brings in for us. And they not only impact ourselves, but they impact the world around us. It's faith that moves Christians to, to do incredible things. It's, it's faith that moves Christians into the mission field. It's, it's faith that moves Christians to share their faith with others. It's faith, that moves, it's faith that moves Christians into doing radical things in obedience to what God is calling them to do. 
And so what kind of faith do we have? And so with all of that as a context, with that as a lens for us to look at, let's read through these first 18 verses of James chapter 1. Remember as we read who he's writing to and who it is that's writing. This is, this is G- James, the son of Jesus, writing to this persecuted, scattered church. Did I flip it back? And, did I flip it? Yeah, brother Jesus. What did I say? Son, yeah. <laughs> See, he's always son of God. That's just the way you, yeah. James, the brother of Jesus, is the one writing. Jesus does not have a son, so let's not even go there. <laughs> but as we look at these first 18 verses, there are a lot of sound bites in here that we like to pull out of context. And so I want us to read the entire section knowing that this is an intentional introduction to what James is writing about. He's not giving us a random assortment of things. He is giving us a thesis for his entire letter. And so let's read this entire thing together. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you will believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises from the scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When you're tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, their desire has con- then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived. My dear brothers and sisters, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that he might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And so we have this first chapter that that seems to jump around a bit. It gives us lots of different stuff here, and we could dissect like every sentence of this and spend time on each of it, but we don't have time for that because we've got other chapters to get to. 
But we're going to try to take this as, as some package of an introduction because it's really not just a random assortment of different things. James is not just throwing out a bunch of things that he cares about. He's spending some time really setting up what he wants to talk about. They seem to be unrelated, but they really are related. If we can just remember that he is writing to the poor and persecuted Jewish Christians, then we're able to kind of see how these things start to connect and how these things start to flow. When we're talking about trials, we're talking about the poverty that's happening for people who are refugees away from their home. We've seen so much about refugees on the news lately and the, the images and the stories of people who are, are fleeing their homeland because of persecution and trying to find somebody that will take them in. These are the people that James is writing to. When he talks about trials, he's not talking about ingrown toenails. <laughs> he's ta- it is a serious trial but not as much as being chased away from your home and persecuted because of your faith. And so trials, while they cover a lot of different things, and we can apply this in a lot of different ways, the original audience here is is a group of people who are experiencing extreme poverty and extreme persecution. And these are the people who are facing trials. These are the people who are tempted to revolt in some sort of way against those that are oppressing them. These are the ones that are discouraged and wondering how they can rely on God in the midst of this crisis. And so the words trials, tempt, tempted, these are all occurring in this section. And they're all coming from the same root Greek word. So trials, temptations, these are all very similar concepts. But if we could summarize this section in just one sentence, if you could just boil it all down, we would say that trials and temptations are both inevitable and God intends both to deepen our faith. So you're going to have trials. You will face temptation. Those things are going to happen. But God wants to use those things to deepen our faith in him. And so will we pursue God in that to deepen our faith? There are three truths that we see in this this section here that help us understand who God is and how our faith works with him. The first one is that God is sovereign over our trials. In these verses 2 through 12, we we see that that God has a sovereignty going on here, that, that there is a role that he's playing that rises above the situations that we find ourselves in. We see that trials are never out of God's control. And because they're never out of God's control, we should consider it joy when we're experiencing these trials. He says, consider it joy. And he doesn't say if you face trials. He says when you face trials. When those come, when, they, when you face those trials, consider it joy. Now, obviously, trials are not joyful things in and of themselves, right? We don't don't celebrate the fact that we're going through some marriage crisis. We don't uh, throw a party because we're unemployed. We, We don't celebrate these things joyfully. 
these are situations where we have to be able to see through the situation to be able to find the joy in it. We have to be able to look at the reality where God is in authority. God is sovereign. And in the midst of those trials, we can depend on him. And that is where we find our joy. The joy we find in our trials is, is not some feeling like, yay, I'm dealing with something bad today. It's a way of thinking. It's a thought that we have. It's, it's viewing through a lens of God's work in our lives. I don't know how many of you have seen a picture like this one here. Um, how many of you have seen a picture like this? So if you look at this picture correctly, you can see a unicorn. Can you see the unicorn there? Not yet. Because the trick is you have to focus differently. You have to really look past the picture and allow things to come into focus and then you see a three-dimensional image of some sort. And before all of you turn into like zombies, let's sl click to the next slide. Because everybody's eyes are going, Ooh. You couldn't get it. It's, so you have to look through the image and the chaos. You see this chaos in front of you. You have to look through it and focus into something differently to see the reality of what's going on there. There's a three-dimensional image there if you look at it correctly. But at first glance, it is just a chaotic mess. And those are the trials in our lives. When we look at them, at, at, at first glance, it is a situation that is just chaotic. It makes no sense. It's frustrating. It's difficult. It's hurtful. It's full of anxiety. And we look at that situation on the surface of what it is, and there is no joy in that. But if we will refocus in on what it is that is actually going on, if we will see things the way God sees things, if we will we'll, we'll reframe the situation, look through the situation at, at what's going on in, in God's kingdom, it is in that place that we can see the real image. And it's in that place that we find the joy. And so we have to be able to to view the trials that we're in with joy. And when we're able to do that, we learn a few lessons. We're able to learn to grow in his likeness because we, we become more like him in this process. In verses 3 and 4, it's talking about how faith is tested to produce endurance. The more tests that we go through where we focus on things the way God wants us to focus in on, we start to see those things more clearly, more quickly. And we gain endurance in those trials. But then the process of, of building endurance leads to maturity and leads to completeness where we lack nothing. And so to really become mature in our walk with God, we have to look at trials and, and grow through those trials. And so when we go through that process, we become more and more like God is calling us to be. I want you to think of a goal in your life, whether it's a, an education goal, to, to graduate high school and get on to college, or, or to make a certain team, or to get a certain job, or get a certain promotion. You, you have this goal in mind, and you don't leap to that goal from one spot to the next. It takes a series of short incremental steps to get to that goal. 
It takes one more class. It takes one more project. It takes one more thing built on all the things prior to that to be able to get to a spot where you are attaining your goal. And so God's goal for all of us is to know him and grow to be like him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to be like him. And that certainly does not happen in one day. It's a process of growing. It's a process of building endurance and perseverance to the point where we are closer and closer to God, where we are finding maturity in him. And so by viewing trials, by viewing trouble, by viewing even temptations in a way where God is using that to mature us, it helps us to grow in his likeness. It also helps us to trust his wisdom. I don't know about you, but if I am having difficulty in a situation, I don't go to someone who continually has difficulty in that same situation. I want to go to someone who's figured it out, someone who isn't making that mistake anymore. I want to go to someone who is wiser than me, who has made those mistakes but has stepped out of those and grown through those. Those are the types of people that I want to go to for advice. And so when we look at our relationship with God, we look at trials, we look at adversity, and and those things can drive us inward, where we just want to deal with it ourselves. We don't want anybody to know about it. We really don't want to deal with it ourselves, and we just turn inward. But James is saying if you turn upward and ask God to see how he sees, he will give it to us. Because he is wise in how to deal with trials. He's got the right way to do it. And so if we are in a situation where we're in a trial, we're in a situation that is just yucky. We get to this point, and we don't know how to see through it and find the joy. God says, ask. Because he has the ultimate answer the ultimate wisdom in how to view that situation. And so this requires a tremendous amount of trust. We have to trust that he is who he says he is. We have to trust that he will do what he says he will do. We have to trust that his promises are true. And that is where we go when we lack the wisdom for dealing with our adversity. God is right every time. He's never wrong. And so the more we walk through the trials with him, the more we learn to trust in his wisdom. And we also learn to rely on his resources because we want to do it ourselves. We want to solve it ourselves. But we don't have the things that it takes to get through the adversity. The theme of riches and poverty show up throughout James. And remember who he's writing to. He's writing to this group that's being oppressed by the rich. And so in that context, he he talks about riches and poverty and what that looks like. The poor were suffering and the rich were relying on their own wealth. But trials seem to have this incredible leveling effect where it doesn't matter how much money you have when that sickness hits, that sickness hits. It doesn't matter how much money you have, but when that marriage crisis hits, the marriage crisis hits. 
And so it becomes this, this leveling effect where it doesn't really matter if you're poor or rich. All the stuff in the world will not fix the hurts that only God can fix. He provides the solution that we need. And so we have this tendency to be deceived by money and by material possessions. As if those are the things that will provide the solutions that we need. That those will be the things that fix our problem. If I only get this promotion, if we only get into this house, if I only have this much in my bank account, if I only have this much in my retirement account, then the problem will be solved. But we're relying on the wrong place. We're relying on the wrong resources. James says if you're poor, celebrate in your circumstances. Celebrate that they're leading you to trust in God and His resources. Celebrate your rich status as a child of God. And don't think that because you are poor that God has left you. On the other hand, if you're rich and you're relying on your own resources, if you're relying on your own riches, or even worse, if you are using your riches to oppress the poor, then you need to watch out. Because you're relying on the wrong things. Another thing we learn is that we live for his reward. We learn, for, we learn to live for his reward. And so in verse 12, we see that the person who is able to persevere is a person that is blessed by God. We have a bit of connection here between what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You think James might have been there listening to that? Where we talk about who is blessed in the kingdom of God. It's a blessing to be matured in this way. It's a blessing to, to be able to go through trials and find the joy. It's, it's a blessing to, to gain perseverance in the midst of that. And the one who perseveres receives a crown of life. Now, as you imagine a crown of life, we don't imagine this, this big gold crown that we see in the movies. The, the, the original readers of here would, would have would have visualized this as a wreath that is put on the winner of an Olympic race. This is the crown that is received. This is the crown of life. That you have run the race and you have won the race. And so this is our reward for persevering. It's a symbol of receiving the incredible reward of eternal life. Romans 8, 18 says, I consider, it, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Our present sufferings, they're just not even worth comparing to what we're going to receive. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So the trials that we're facing, the situation that you're in, that thing that just seems so impossible, that relationship that is not going the way it should be, that job that is just miserable, that house that's falling apart, all of those situations that you find yourself in, those are just light and momentary troubles. Those are really not a big deal. In God's perspective, in the way he views things, those are just momentary 
they are just going to pass like that. Because there's so, something so much greater coming. So we've got a second thing, a second truth that we see through here. The first is the sovereignty of God, that God is, is who he says he's going to be. And the second is we're responsible in our temptations. Starting in verse 13, we start to see temptations come in. And remember, this word tempt is coming from the same word of trial. And so there's a similarity here, but, but we, we look at these temptations, and, and it seems easy to think that, okay, maybe God is the one that's tempting us. We think that he's the one that's causing this. Why would God let this happen? And yes, there are times when God will test our faith. There are times where he will discipline us, and he will work with us for the sake of maturing us. But it can be this very slippery slope to think that God will test us to the point of thinking that God will tempt us. We need to be careful not to take that step. God will not tempt us to do wrong. God will not tempt us to turn away from him. James makes it very clear that God is not the one that's doing the tempting. Trials in and of themselves are neutral when it comes to sin. A trial is not sinful. A temptation is not sinful. But each trial brings with it temptations. And the temptations are to not rely on God. The temptations are not to trust in Him. The temptations are to have faith in something besides Him. These trials have temptations. We face a financial trial and we're tempted not to trust in God's provision. We face a health situation, and we're tempted to question God's love and concern. Someone close to us dies, and we are tempted to question the goodness of God. The temptation comes with the trial. But verse 13 very clearly tells us that God is not the one who tempts. He cannot tempt us. We are responsible in our temptations. And so James lays out this progression of sin and each step, we're responsible to take the next step. So this first step is deception. There is a lie that is told, and we, we know that Satan is the liar, right? He comes in and tells Eve, did God really say that? Is God really who he says he is? In that lie, there's deception. And in that deception, there becomes desire. Maybe it will taste good. Maybe I do want that. Maybe that is the truth. Maybe I'm believing that God really isn't who he says he is. And in that desire becomes a step of disobedience. And that is where sin happens. We act on our desire. We act on the, the things that we want and long for. And then finally, that leads to death. Because that is the result of the disobedience that we have gotten into. And so whatever sin you're flirting with, whatever desire that uh, you have, whatever deception that you're buying into, whatever thing that you are trying to fulfill in your life in your own way instead of God's way, run from those things. Because they lead to death. They lead to death. But we're responsible in those things. We're responsible in how we interact and how we, how we respond to those temptations. 
Our last truth here is that God is faithful for our salvation. And this really is the good news of this entire passage, that, that even if you're facing trials, even if you're facing temptations, there is good news for all of us. James gives us this final encouragement to those who are facing the trials and temptations. He says, God is faithful. God is good. He will be there regardless of the situation that you find yourself in. We trust in him in our trials. We turn to him in our temptations. We trust in his goodness. Because his goodness is unchanging. His goodness is undeserved. His goodness is unending. God is good. He is constant and consistent. He never changes anything. And we receive new life through him. Because God is who he says he is. There's a lot to grab onto here. There's a lot to, to, to think about as we process the situations that we're in because each one of us come with very unique things. Some of us are in the midst of a trial that is, is very much consuming us right now. We are facing adversity. Others of us have, have been through that and have seen the joy that can be found in those trials. And others of us have, have not experienced that yet. But when it comes, be prepared. God is sovereign over our trials. We are responsible in our temptations. But God is faithful. God is faithful for our salvation. He will not give up on us. He will not give up. And so regardless of the situations and the circumstances that you find yourself in today, take heart, be encouraged. He has saved us from our sins. And if God can save us from our sins, what can he do to the situation that you find yourself in now? If he can do a miracle as incredible as raising his son from the dead, what can he do in your situation? What can he do with your job? What can he do with your health? What can he do with your marriage? What can he do with your work? What can he do with whatever situation you find yourself in? Because the God who raised Jesus from the dead is the God that we follow. And he will save. God conquers sin. He conquers suffering. And through his son, Jesus, we find new life. And that is the good news of why we gather today. That is why we exist as followers of Jesus. And so today we can consider it pure joy to be in trials. We can consider it pure joy to face temptation. We can face those things with strength and confidence, knowing that God is there with us. God is, is making us like him. He is maturing us. He is drawing us into closer relationship with him. Let's be standing. So we find ourselves in different situations, and, and God says, if you can't see yourself through this situation, if you can't see the joy in that situation, if you can't see how that situation is maturing you, then you need to ask God for wisdom. 
you need to ask God that he will help you see that. And so we're going to spend some time in prayer. And whatever situation, if it is just the ingrown toenail, small situation, you know, if, it, if, it's, if it's the little thing or if it's the big thing, take that to God. And so we're going to spend some time in prayer with one another. We're going to spend some time singing. Um, but I want to encourage you, the shepherds will be down front. You can move across the aisle, pray with one another. Take your situation, take your trial, take your temptation to God in prayer with each other. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the message that you have for us. God, I pray that you will give us the wisdom to see the situations around us the way you see them. And encourage us. God, help us to find the joy in everything. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.